to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Warren Evans. And I'm Fernanda Allen. August 19th, 2020, only a couple weeks ago. Lauren, do you know what happened on that day? Mm, was there some Taylor Swift album I haven't heard about? <laughs> you know, that totally would not surprise me. Taylor's like, and one more during COVID, just in my <laughs> free time, wrote another album. Um, but no, interestingly enough, on August 19th, Dunkin' Donuts brought back the pumpkin spice latte. PSLs are back, even though fall is still almost a month away. Uh, so this was the earliest that the drink has ever been released, and Starbucks was not far behind. They brought their PSLs back on August 25th, uh, two days earlier than last year. So if you are drinking a pumpkin spice latte, a cold brew, a frap, while you're listening to this podcast, tweet at us. We want to know. So Lauren, the question is, have you had your first pumpkin spice latte of the season yet? Of course not. <laughs> I think any listener, and, and I'm sure you, Virginia, probably pegs me as like a black coffee person, maybe a splash of milk. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really venture too much out from that. What about you, Virginia? Are you a PSL person? You know, I will indulge in the fall. I feel like it's just part of fall now that, you know, you have the boots, you have the scarf, and then you have the PSL in your hand. Now, I do usually want to drink coffee. It usually is black. Um, so it's, it's really like a dessert drink. But as I was looking up the release dates for uh, Pumpkin Spice this year, I came across something very fascinating. So Starbucks ha temporarily has launched a fall hotline. So if you dial one eight three three get fall, uh, you're gonna have a great laugh. It is a wildly bizarre hotline. There's various recordings that you can select from. One of them being a hayride. Um, it's a great time. I was sitting on my porch this afternoon, just dying laughing. So it's, I feel like I'm plugging Starbucks, but I kind of am because we all need to laugh in this season. Laughter is so good. Uh, so it's one eight three three get fall. Um, do it. Call it. You'll die laughing. Okay, Lauren, moving on from pumpkin spice and falls, quote unquote, early arrival. What do we have up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee about her new book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman. And of course, we ask her about her conflict with Taylor Swift. Plus, Janae Strackey, the grassroots director of Heritage Action for America, and Jeannie Seaver, a Heritage Action Sentinel from Savannah, Georgia, join the show to explain how they are supporting law enforcement in local communities across America, and how you can as well. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am thrilled to be joined by Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Senator, thanks so much for being here. 
I am so excited to be with you. And, you know, conservative women are problematic women. So there you go. It's a great format <laughs> for my book. <laughs> Senator, on September 1st, you released your brand new book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman. Now, liberals, I think, have been trying unsuccessfully to understand the mind of a conservative woman for a very long time. So I do hope that they buy the book and read it. So maybe, hopefully, they can finally understand. But I want to begin by asking you, why did you feel the need to write this book? One of the things that had happened through the years is dealing with the mainstream media and dealing with policymakers in Washington, D.C. I found it so interesting that conservative women are generally considered to be fourth-class citizens. They're kind of at the bottom of the pecking order, and the mainstream media likes to ridicule women who are pro-life, pro-family, pro-business, pro-military, and they kind of shove them aside or mock them. And then I would notice how when you're out in the heartland and around the country, most women will say, oh, I'm not partisan. They're not Democrat or Republican. But they will tell you that what they want, their hopes and dreams and desires, they want government off their back, out of their pocketbook. They want lower taxes. They want to make certain that their children have every opportunity possible to live their version of the American dream. And I began to realize most of these women tilt conservative, but they didn't have a landing spot. Likewise, I was hearing from a lot of women who said, you know, my child that was raised in the church went to a good conservative school. They go to college and they come home and they're leaning left. And they had a need to help their children understand why they, as a family, believe what they believe and why it is important to hear both sides of an issue and have discussion. And then with the advent of the cancel culture, again, we were hearing from women who were saying, you know, my kids are being taught, if someone's not in complete agreement with you, then you can't have anything to do with them. And diversity is one of the richnesses of our lives. Having robust, respectful, bipartisan debate helps us to create a stronger government. So I decided that this would be my project during 2019, and I would write a book that is a landing spot for women, that is an instruction guide for women on how to talk about conservatism, is a guidebook for how to have uh, debates on certain issues, and a book that would be a history book on the roots of conservatism, and how we got to modern-day conservatism. And how did you come to be a conservative? You know, I was so fortunate to grow up in a conservative family. We were always taught, give back more than you take and leave things in better shape than you found them. And not to sit around waiting on opportunity, to make your opportunities so that you could be learning more, doing more, giving back more. And that was the, the spirit in which I was reared. So I came to the 
process of conservatism by seeing it lived out for me every single day in my family, in my community, and then going college, ha- going to college, having the opportunity to debate with my friends who were on the other side of the aisle from me and debate those issues. And, you know, being challenged and debating strengthens your resolve and your belief. You do such a great job right at the beginning of the book of painting a clear distinction between the conservative and liberal vision for America. Explain how those two visions differ and specifically how they each view women. Yes, indeed. And I was so fortunate to have one of my favorite mentors, Speaker Newt Gingrich, write the foreword for this book. And of course, he has been one of the wonderful visionaries of modern conservatism, and we all appreciate uh, the leadership and the vision he brought to our movement. One of the things that I did in the book was talk about how the left likes to have government control. And I use an example of Julia. Remember Julia from the life of Julia from the Obama campaign and how Julia's life, when you looked at that, and of course that cartoon was widely mocked by the mainstream media as well as the conservative media, but what did they do? Julia had no need for anything else other than the federal government who was there to provide the needs for her and then for she and her child and for her in retirement. And that is an underpinning of the left, that you look at government first to solve your problems. When you look at conservatives, conservatives look at the strength of the individual, of the fact that government should be there to protect us from government coming in and taking our rights that are given to us. That is why we have the rule of law. And so you have these two very different footings. Conservatives who say, get government in the right spot, get them over on the side, and liberals who say, oh, we're going to go to government first to solve everything. And uh, liberals who say, give your rights to the government. And uh, conservatives who say, no, these are our rights And the rule of law and government should be to protect government from coming in and using a heavy hand and taking those rights and freedoms away. So using the example of the life of Julia and then also a chapter that I did on the Stepford Wives of Liberalism, where I talk about how the liberal, the left, uses the same words, same phrases to try to communicate a, a message. So we kind of draw that paradigm and that difference. And then I follow that with talking about the history of conservatism, going back into our Judeo-Christian founding and looking at Jerusalem, looking at the 12 tribes of Israel for the foundation for federalism, then Athens, then London, then Philadelphia, then D.C., and bringing us to modern conservatism as we look at writings from de Tocqueville and Burke, 
uh, looking at the French Revolution and what Burke learned from that, looking at William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk. And I've even put a reading list in the book because I think it would be helpful for individuals that are, you know, just figuring out they're more center right than anything else politically. Just uh, some good things for them to read to kind of shore them up as to what real conservatism is. We are so pleased to be talking with Senator Marsha Blackburn about her new book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman. And Senator, I, I do really love how right uh, at the beginning, close to the beginning of the book, you paint this wonderful picture of the history of conservatism. I found that really, really helpful. One of my favorite stories that you get into and that you share in in your book is about your trip to Iraq in 2003. And on that trip, uh, you spoke with Iraqi women who they had lost so much. Their nation had been ravaged by war and Saddam Hussein had essentially created an anti-American culture where women were frequently raped and abused. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that trip and how it impacted your political views? One of the things that was so impactful to me on this trip was hearing from those that were working on the ground, our State Department, USAID uh, personnel, our military personnel. And um, General David Petraeus had established a women's center in Mosul where we were visiting. And one of what we saw at this women's center was Iraqi women who huddled around the openings of this shell of a building that was left just to listen to our words be translated to them. They had their daughters with them. And to them, this was such a sign of hope. They loved getting our business cards, rubbing their hands over our business cards. They loved the fact that we came to see them. And to me, it really was such a lesson that hope lives in the human heart, that your children are not going to have to endure what you have had to endure. You describe your mission and passion as being faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. Why those five words? Uh, This is something that came about uh, through my political life as people would say, well, tell me what you're working on. Tell me what's important to you. And I realized that I needed to hone it down so that it wasn't a 10-minute speech And I just began to distill it and it came down to those five things that I'm the happy warrior for. I get up every day and I go to fight to protect our faith, our families, our freedoms that are so precious and hope for better days, opportunities for individuals to live their version of the American dream. And I realized that that is kind of the lens through which I look at policymaking and legislation. Is this something that is going to further the cause of faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity? Is it something that is going to diminish or weaken freedom? And, you know, Ronald Reagan 
told us over and over, you do not pass freedom along in the bloodstream. Every single generation has to fight for it and pass it on strong to the next generation. The media doesn't do a great job of showing what conservative women actually believe and why we believe it. Why do you think that the media gets this wrong? Yeah, you know, uh, the reason the media gets it wrong nearly every day is because they do not have respect for the belief system of conservative women because they've created this caricature of what conservatism is. If you listen to the mainstream media, you think conservatives are gray-haired old guys that are sitting in a room and they're greedy and trying to hoard everything for themselves. And you don't realize that there is a country full of people who are center, center right, who are saying, I love my family. I want the best for my family. I want more opportunities, not fewer opportunities. I want to make certain that we can go to church on Sunday and that we have the right to exercise our faith, that we are free of the fear of religious persecution. They want to make certain that there is job security, that they can go to work every day and work hard and be compensated. And if they start a business or create some wonderful invention, that our laws are going to protect them and allow them to benefit from this. I have many times said that the Republican Party should change the meaning of GOP and make it the Great Opportunity Party because that is what we are for. We are the land of opportunity. We want more opportunities for everyone in this country. Everyone, equal opportunities. Senator, we cannot have you on the show and not bring up Taylor Swift. We covered Swift's decision to get political quite extensively on this show, including her targeted attack against you. For those who might be unaware, during your 2018 run for Senate, Swift not only endorsed your opponent, but she also spoke out against you and she attacked your record. And you discussed Taylor Swift's film, Miss Americana, and her attack on you in the book, Swift pointed to your, uh, specifically your vote on the Violence Against Women Act as the central reason why she opposed you. Uh, And she said she opposed you because you voted against that act. Uh, You set the record straight though in your book. Can you just take us a minute and explain what happened between you and Taylor Swift? Yes, absolutely. And I'll say first, I've had a great working relationship with our fabulous creative community in Tennessee and have been one of the fierce defenders of their intellectual property rights and have authored legislation that has been very helpful to the music industry. So to have someone from that industry come out with this diatribe against me, which was incorrect information. It was like some of those talking points that everybody on the left starts to use and they're going to stick with them. So uh, someone had given her this list of campaign talking points. So as I'm talking about how legislation is made and getting into that in the book, I talk about this incidence with Taylor Swift 
And she had pointed to different things she thought I'd done wrong uh, that had offended her. So I pointed out the fact that I had quite a history of working hard to help women and children who had been adversely impacted and had faced abuse and, and violence. I've done a tremendous amount of work on those that have been caught in that horrific web of human trafficking. And I talk about this specific bill that I had voted for and the version that we had in the House. And then the bill goes to the Senate and then the bill gets changed and all of these other things uh, get added onto the bill. And then this final version comes back to us. And that is a version that I voted against because I want to make certain that resources are going to our abuse centers and actually going into things like rape kits and are going to help women and children that have been suffering abuse. So I think it's so interesting how, and this is a part of the cancel culture. If someone thinks that you have an opinion or they have assigned an opinion to you, then they assign everything that is negative to you. And this is how you end up having this cancel culture. I've said so many times, I am always willing to have a conversation with anyone who wants to make the lives of Tennesseans better. And my door is always open to have those conversations. Now, I know that you invited Taylor Swift to your home to sit down and have a conversation about these issues. Did Swift ever respond to your invitation one way or another? No, no. Uh, but we are certainly, you know, I'm always open to have a conversation and discuss issues. And see, this is one of those things, Virginia, that you get um, when you have individuals that say only this opinion is a valid opinion. You lose that opportunity for that respectful, robust political debate. If you do not have that, you're never going to be able to work toward a more perfect union. It's important for us to remember that. At the top of chapter nine, you write, and I, I have to read this because I just love it. It's so good. You say, you are a conservative woman. You are beautiful. You are gifted. You are capable. You are both passionate and compassionate. I admire you. I'm glad you're in the world. I'll tell you something else. You can't hide. You can't go about your quiet way. To be a conservative woman in this generation means you are going to stand out. I, I love that so much, but I also recognize the weight of those words. As conservative women, we do stand out. And that can be highly uncomfortable sometimes when friends and family members are asking you to defend what you believe because, you know, in their mind, as a woman, you must believe in a woman's right to abortion. You must believe in big government welfare programs to support single moms and, and so on. So what is your battle cry to conservative women who honestly are just weary of always feeling like they're kind of on the outside? Yes, and uh, that is one of the reasons 
for putting the history of conservatism there and giving this landing spot. Because too many times women who are conservative feel as if they are on defense. They go to work, they hear from other women, uh, they listen to some of these TV shows that are so tilted left, and they feel as if there is not a spot for them. And it's important that they realize they are the majority. They are the majority of women in this country. They, more women who are independent or center-right agree with them than agree with the programming on all of these shows that fill up daytime TV. And conservative women are caring and compassionate. They care not only for their children and their families, but for their communities. They are givers. They're constantly stepping up to help other people. In Tennessee, we're known as the volunteer state. There are wonderful women who are leading outreach with different community groups simply to stand up and to help others. They have a servant's heart. And how do we as conservative women articulate to our friends, sisters, mothers, female coworkers, how do we how do we articulate our conservative views to them in order to to bring more women into the conservative movement? You know, I think one of the things when you talk about communicating is being able to learn how to talk about issues and to engage someone to talk with you and to not be combative. And that's why I actually have some guidance in the book. How do you talk about some of these issues, whether it's taxes or healthcare or abortion or immigration and talk about it and see the other point of view? You know, you've got to learn to engage so that you can help change people's minds. And uh, many times the issue of healthcare will come up and people will say, well, of course, I think everybody ought to be able to have access to healthcare. Then you ask some of the questions. Do you think you should have to give up your health insurance in order for someone else to have access to healthcare, and people will say, well, no, I don't see the connection between those two. And um, you can agree that healthcare is expensive and we need to get the cost down. How do you get the cost down? You have more opportunities for insurance products in the marketplace. You have transparency, price transparency, so that you know what things are going to cost. You look at the cost of pharmaceuticals and you say, how do we get those down? That's something that President Trump has done a tremendous amount of work on. So you begin to look at the different components of the issue. Likewise, immigration, looking at that. And as you talk about these individuals that were being brought by coyotes, taken from their families and their villages in Central America and brought to the southern border and then put into gangs, put into labor crews, put into um, uh, human trafficking rings. 
And these families in Central America thought they were sending their child to the U.S. and then they would be able to follow and they never hear from that child. So there's another side to these issues and it's important to be able to have good discussions on these issues. Senator, we ask all of our guests on this show one question. We love hearing the various answers and responses that we get. Do you consider yourself to be a feminist? Oh, you know, I've never applied the term feminist uh, to myself. Am I a trailblazer? Yes. Am I uh, constantly breaking barriers and opening doors for women? Absolutely. And indeed, we have kind of chuckled a few times about a profile that was done on me in my college newspaper when I had talked a company into hiring me to let me sell books door to door during the summertime. And the whole thing was about breaking barriers and opening doors for women. And uh, I think that it is so vitally important that we constantly do this so that we are making it easier for the next generation of women. And I'm going to continue to do that. I don't uh, know if there is a label that goes with it, trailblazer, uh, break, ceiling breaker, barrier pusher, I don't know. It's just that women and conservative women, they're going to be there to help preserve freedom for the next generation, I want to do everything I can to encourage and embolden them. Senator Blackburn, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. Your book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, is available wherever books are sold. KT McFarland, the former Deputy National Security Advisor, wrote about your book. This book is a joy to read, the story of a happy warrior driven by a code of integrity, decency and common sense. And I can certainly concur with that. The book is truly a joy to read. And again, it can be found wherever books are sold. We'll be sure to put a link in today's show notes if you'd like to buy it. But Senator, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Bye. Stay tuned because up next, I chat with Janae Strachey, the grassroots director of Heritage Action for America, and Jeannie Seaver, a Heritage Action Sentinel from Savannah, Georgia, to discuss how we can all support our men and women in law enforcement. But before we get to our next conversation, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Heritage Explains. And my friends, Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, host the show to break down big policy debates that you're hearing about in the news at a one-on-one level. Using news clips and music, they tell a story, but they also bring on heritage experts to explain these complex issues. I was just listening to an episode on Saturday, and I found it so helpful for understanding some of the chaos that we're seeing in our world today. So if you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to Heritage Explains. We are so pleased to welcome Janae Strachey, the grassroots director of Heritage Action for America, and Jeannie Seaver, a Heritage Action Sentinel from Savannah, Georgia. Ladies, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great to be here. 
So, Janae, I want to start with you. Heritage Action for America, or HAFA, as we often call it for short, is the grassroots partner organization of the Heritage Foundation. And you all work all over the country at a grassroots level to further the principles of opportunity and freedom for all Americans. So as the grassroots coordinator, you have been really focusing a lot of your attention on the initiative called Fight for America, and now even more specifically on this Back the Blue campaign. Can you explain a little bit about what the Fight for America is and the Back the Blue campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. And, um, you know, you mentioned that we're, we are the grassroots arm and we've got uh, grassroots all across this country fighting at the, you know, every level they're involved in true patriots, really. They just they love America. They love the freedoms that we stand for um, and, and they're fighting. So the Fight for America campaign, um, Heritage Action is really uniquely set up to do what we are doing through this campaign. And that is because of the Sentinel program. And what's so unique about our Sentinels is that they're they're not just your everyday activists, you know, just getting an email and signing a petition. They are the front line of the fight. They are the grass tops, they're building relationships with their members of Congress to hold them accountable. And they're a conservative army is what they are. Um, so they've been doing this for 10 years now. They're trained, they're informed, they're educated. And, and most importantly, which I think you'll probably hear from Jeannie in a little bit, they have relationships with their elected officials. And that is so important when you are fighting to hold them accountable because far too often lawmakers get elected and then they, they go to Washington and they forget about the conservative principles that they ran on, that their constituents elected them to uphold. So it is our job as their constituents to hold them accountable. And that's exactly what Sentinels do. So the, the Fight for America campaign, we started because you know, 2020 has been a tough year for pretty much everyone. And um, I think I think we would all agree that this fight against America, if you will, from the left, this attack on America did not start in 2020. This has been going on for a very, very long time and they have slowly chipped away. And I, I see 2020 as the climax of that. It is really boiled to the top. And now there are mobs in the streets, things, everything's being lit on fire. People are being attacked in restaurants, just sitting and having their meal. I mean, it really has gotten out of hand. And a big portion of that um, we've seen the mobs turn on our, our police officers, our first responders. And, at the, you know, at the beginning of the year, we were all about our first responders. And then it was like one flip of the switch. And we want to defund everyone. We they were the left is fighting for a lawless society. It's pure chaos. So Fight for America um, has four different planks to it. But one of them is to support law enforcement. And we see this as a line in the sand. We're not um, getting into the nitty gritty of policy and reforms. And, um, you know, I think they need, uh, let's give them more funding. Let's give them more resources. Let's give them more training. Um, so it doesn't get into all the nitty gritty. It We have a police pledge 
that we're asking members of Congress um, and all elected officials to sign. There's a petition portion that um, citizens across the country can sign. And this police pledge is the line in the sand that you either support law and order or you support chaos. You either support police or you do not. And, you know, we've really seen it take off. Um, we we re- felt really strongly about going on the offense and um, fighting to protect uh, the American values that we hold dear and um, the rule of law. So that's that's what we've been working on. That's so great. Well, it's, you're right. I mean, it's such uh, a critical moment in our nation's history, and it's been uh, almost mind-boggling just watching how that switch did take place so quickly. Um, really tragic. But Jeannie, I want to ask you, because you are a sentinel, you're from Savannah, Georgia, you're on the ground, and you're getting involved. You're working within your community to say, hey, we need to support our local law enforcement. So tell me a little bit about um, how you've gotten involved as a sentinel in your own community and and specifically with this Back the Blue campaign. Sure. Thank you um, for thinking of me and having me on. I, um, I wanted to share that, you know, a lot of people out here on the ground are very frustrated and don't feel represented by our elected officials. So, and our elected officials don't hear from us much. So with the Sentinel program, you know, the Back the Blue pledge came out and, you know, the Heritage Action was um, asking us to reach out to our elected officials. And um, so I immediately reached out to like our Governor Kemp um, and he signed on right away. He was the first governor in this nation to sign on to the Back the Blue Pledge. Also um, reached out to Senator Kelly Loeffler. She was the first United States Senator nationally to sign the, the Back the Blue Pledge and promises to support our police and never, never, ever defund them. Um, and also Senator David Perdue. That's to name a few. Um, you know, and, and we've talked a lot about, you know, holding our elected officials accountable and people aren't feeling safe out here. So we figured we could do, you know, why, you know, call up our elected officials and say, Hey, we need your support. We need you to start standing up because people are feeling like they're not being represented out here. You sit there and talk about what's happening, even in Washington, DC. And all of a sudden now they're going to start paying more attention because one of our United States senators got attacked Versus all of us out here being attacked every day. I mean, I I have the utmost respect for our elected officials. And um, it's all about getting to know them, building relationships, having, you know, hold, um, holding them accountable. Also, not only calling them up when they do bad things, but also being there and and letting them know that we're there to you know, to have their backs when they do something good too, which is really, really important. So that's been very successful. And that's, you know, the part of the Sentinel program and building relationships. And um, one of our senators even um, had stated that when I reached out to him, he goes, well, you know, that's a no brainer. Not, I don't usually sign pre- pledges, but this is definitely a no brainer. So you know, those are the kind of things um, that are really important. As far as on the ground, um, we're actually here in Savannah, Georgia, coordinating a Back the Blue rally that's coming up on Monday. 
Um, and I've reached out to all law enforcement from talking to the second in command of our state patrol here in Georgia. Um, and he's talking about how their morale is very, very low. Um, but we want them to know about our event. This is not a, not about any politician being up there on the stage. This is about inviting all our men and women in blue to our rally. No elected officials will have the platform. It's, it's going to be hearing from Larry Branson, who runs Crime Stoppers. Are. We're trying to get the chief of police of the various municipalities all around us. And another thing that we're doing is also we had some specific Back the Blue design logo designed for us by Nine Line Apparel, um, which... And it, we had sponsors on the back, which helped us raise money for the event. And what we are doing with the proceeds from this event, we are donating to an organization called the 200 Club of the Coastal Empire that provides immediate financial assistance to surviving spouses and children of local law enforcement officers and firefighters who lost their lives in the line of duty while protecting their communities. So we promised them it's not political, um, but we all know it somewhat is political, unfortunately. But we're also providing, we're going out in the community and collecting um, gifts like free meal tickets. And we had this, this the owner of the Ballastone Inn to donate a free weekend and what we're also doing is providing a free raffle ticket to every police police officer or law or anyone in law enforcement that comes to our rally. And we're going to give them free raffle tickets as a way to give back to them, you know, like food cards or weekend stay somewhere or um, different, different, you know, a three months, three months membership at the YMCA. You know, so we, 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 we've made it perfectly clear it's not political. We want to hear from them. We want to know what we can do to help them as a community and let them know how much we love them and we are behind them 100%. It's so simple, but I think it's, it's critical right now because you think about our men and women in law enforcement, it's already an incredibly challenging job to, you know, every day you put that badge on and you walk out the door and you're putting your life on the line. But then when you're not sure if you have the support of your community, that's so incredibly challenging and discouraging. And I'm sure makes, you know, you think, why, why am I even doing this job? Why am I putting my life on the line? So, oh my goodness, this is so, so critical for our law enforcement to know they are supported. We are for them. We are we are proud of, of who they are, that they're doing their job. Uh, so for, for anyone listening, Janae, how how can they get involved? How can they how can they back the blue in their own community? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I would challenge anyone listening to go to policepledge.com right now. And if you haven't already, sign that pledge and then share it with friends and family um, and get as many people as you can to sign this pledge and share it. But then if, if you have any um, contact with a, a elected official, whether it's 
local, state, federal, reach out to their office, send them an email, call them, set up a meeting with them and encourage them to sign this pledge as well. We have over 40,000 citizen signatures right now, almost 60 U.S. House representatives, um, 70 state officials, six U.S. senators and governors. I mean, it is it's really starting to take off. And as Jeannie was talking about the relationships, if you get one key person in your state to sign, um, people have been clamoring and like a, a snowball effect to come sign this pledge. So um, I love what she said about uh, the the member that said this is a no brainer. And that's exactly what we wanted it to be. It's a no brainer. And, and you as a constituent should know, is your elected official willing to sign this or not? Where do they stand? So that, that would be my challenge. Sign the pledge. If you want to get involved with the Sentinel program, you can simply go to her- heritageaction.com backslash Sentinel. Everything you need to know is there and uh, all, the, all the resources and training that you need at your fingertips. Janae and Jeannie, thank you both so much for being here. We just really appreciate you coming on the show and we appreciate all the work that both of you are doing to support our, our men and women in law enforcement. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Enjoyed being here with y'all. All right, stick around because in just a moment, we're going to be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week and we'll be sharing our weekly Twitter poll question. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now, it is that time of the week once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Alice Marie Johnson. Johnson, who became famous after show favorite Kim Kardashian advocated for her release from prison as part of the First Step Act, was just pardoned by President Trump last week. In 1993, Johnson was arrested, and in 1997, she was sentenced to life in prison without parole for her involvement in a cocaine trafficking organization. Johnson turned her life around while in prison and even became a certified hospice worker and an ordained minister. She began to speak out about her situation and advocated for a second chance. When Kim Kardashian learned of her situation, she fought for Johnson's release. In 2018, Trump commuted Johnson's sentence, and last week he granted her a full pardon. Alice, you've been through a lot and taught us about redemption, so we are proud to name you Problematic Woman of the Week. So good. She certainly deserves it. And we're so proud of the work that we've seen the Heritage Foundation do and so many other leaders across the conservative movement around the First Step Act. Uh, and and Johnson has really been just this powerful advocate for criminal justice reform that is needed. So congratulations to her. All right. Now it is time for our Twitter poll question. So last week we asked you all how you were going back to school. If you were going back maybe through a pod or online, or if you were going back in person. And I was interested to learn that 57% of those who responded to the poll are going back in person, which I feel like it's good news. 
This week's Twitter question is, did the pumpkin spice latte return too soon this year? The answers include, yes, it was too soon. No, I needed it. Or probably what I'm going to pick. I only drink real coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Too funny. All right. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. In the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, new recently iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.